0: Welcome to Simulcast, I'm Victoria Brazel,
1: I'm Ben Simon, I'm Jesse Spur.
0: I'm Jess Stokes-Parish and you're listening to Simulcast, connecting the healthcare simulation community. Welcome to Simulcast, I'm Victoria Brazel and today's episode is a special topic episode about how we prepare for and train for uh, performing under pressure. And in particular, how we might use simulation in order to manage our emotional activation when we're really under the pump, particularly in the resuscitation room. So, to talk about this topic, uh, you can hear a conversation between me and Dr. Dan Dwarkus, who's an emergency physician from Southern California. And I'll talk about Dan in a minute, but we're going to be particularly focused on a paper that a group of us have written entitled Exploring Participant Experience to Optimize the Design and Delivery of Stress Exposure Simulations in Emergency Medicine. Uh, and that's been published just in March this year in Academic Emergency Medicine and Training. Now, a little bit more about the conversation with Dan. So as I said, Dan's an emergency physician, but he's also the founder of the Emergency Mind Project, which is both a podcast, a book, and indeed a community. Uh, And his book is fantastic. It's called The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure. And if you go to his uh, website there on the Emergency Mind Project, which I'll put the links in the show notes, uh, you can actually get that book. He's also the uh, chief medical officer at the Mission Critical Teams Institute, where he does a lot of training individuals and teams for exactly this purpose of high performance. So as I said, we're going to be talking about the article, and it's a great conversation about why we need to do this kind of training, uh, how we did our study and what we found, and some broader conversations about ways to get better, particularly uh, in the face of these stressful environments that many of us in healthcare find ourselves in. And it's particularly special because this podcast conversation is released here on Simulcast, but also on the Emergency Mind podcast. And although we love you subscribing to us, I would also highly recommend Dan's podcast. And again, the links to that in the notes. Uh, Links to all the references and the things we're talking about are in the episode description. And so without further ado, here's our conversation. So Dan, I think you're going to start with asking yeah. me a few questions about this paper that I got to do with a bunch of my great friends and colleagues.
1: Yeah, and I'm so excited to talk about this. This is such an interesting paper and such a really like important thing to be thinking about. I, I, I think this is a big hole in what we're doing right like I'm not sure any of us really know how to do this well and I'm, I'm excited to get into it with you and and uh and to dig into it and it's funny you know normally normally I, I am like you know welcome to the podcast I'm so happy to have you but honestly I like this is equally your podcast as it is mine so I, I think like welcome to this incredible like weird trans world thing we're doing here that, that's going to be awesome we'll I know it's fantastic for me I yeah. feel
0: like we're leveraging off the back of the uh, famous emergency mind podcast <laughs>
1: I don't know about that yeah <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so why don't we start with this? So, um, there's a, there's a chance that like a lot of the folks listening to this have read this. There's a chance that some of them haven't. Can, can, do you want to start and maybe just give like a huge, huge overview of what it is we're talking about and then we can dig into some of the details of it.
0: So this is definitely written with, uh, emergency medicine, critical care, high acuity healthcare practitioners in mind. And I think we know that our job is stressful. Other people's jobs are stressful too, but I think we know our job is stressful, whatever that means. And I think uh, speaking as someone who is a simulation practitioner, we've always had this idea that some kind of training can help us recognize and deal with our stress so that we can preserve our performance. Now, a lot of the work that we do in simulation is just making people better at their jobs. Mm-hmm. And you and I know after many years of doing something, you actually feel less stressed about it when a trauma patient comes in or where there's an airway to do because you've got the runs on the board uh, that means you can say, yeah, I don't feel as stressed about it as I used to. But I think there was also a sense that... Uh, there was perhaps specific kind of training we could do, which focused on the stress response itself, and on thinking, well, can we put people in a simulated environment, uh, create some stressful situation that then people are better able to recognise and regulate as a result of the training that we do. So yes, be better at our jobs from a clinical standpoint, but also be better at the stress, if that makes sense. And we were very keen to try and explore this in a little bit more of a rigorous research kind of framework because I guess we saw some things that I was certainly concerned about uh, may not have been achieving what people were hoping and, in fact, may have even been doing harm in terms of uh, throwing people into crazy simulations.
1: Yeah. Yeah, there's a, you know, sort of by way of background, there's this interesting kind of paradox here, which is that, like, you have to learn how to get better under pressure. Uh, and also it's really unclear how that happens, right? So it, nobody, um, nobody is born a fully functional ER doctor, right? It just doesn't happen, right? Everybody starts mm-hmm. at something mm-hmm. and then trains somehow to get to the point where they're able to handle the pressure and stress, but it's not guaranteed because not everybody is equally as good at it. Right. If you were, if you were, and I, we were not going to do this, but if we were going to take all of the people that we know in common and, you know, rack and stack them based on how calm they were under pressure, there'd be a distribution in there. And sometimes Mm. that, sometimes that difference is quite small and only comes out in certain types of cases or certain types of scenarios. And sometimes it's quite a bit different than that. Right. So somehow everybody gets to the point where they can do it most of the time. And then some people get to the point where they can do it more of the time. And then there's some, there's some distributions in there that it's worth sort of pressing on. On a little bit. And, you know, when I first started, I sort of had this idea, and this was sort of the dominant model that I was taught, which is that, like, learning how to perform under pressure is a byproduct of just performing under pressure, right? Like, if you just smash your head against a wall over and over again, eventually, like, you'll figure it out. And, like, to an extent, that's true because that's been how a lot of emergency medicine training has been, like, for a decent amount of time. But, but the thing that always gets me is like, if that were really true, like if it were just simple number of, um, exposures to stress that somehow you just picked it up, you know, via osmosis or whatever, then the oldest doctor in the room that had seen the most cases would always be the best at this. And that's just not true, right? It's just mm. not like sometimes it is, right? Sometimes you get these incredible, you know, elder statesmen and stateswomen of, of emergency medicine who are like, just like, you know, the, to, to quote, um, Uh, my friend and mentor Preston Klein about this, like gray beard, blue hair, like this person, right? Like the person who's like the, you know, the elder of the group and they're amazing under pressure and they're incredible. And sometimes it's not the case. Sometimes it's a much younger person. That's actually probably like the most able to handle the pressure Mm -hmm. aspect of it. So if you have to spend time on target to get it, but time on targets, not sufficient to get it, what is it? How does it work? And, and yes. that to me is the weird it's paradox of like that, that wedges us into this idea. And and I think that one of the theories that folks have advanced in terms of how to train it is this idea of stress inoculation, right? So, so what is that? Like, what's mm-hmm. the point of that? And how does that work? Because my read of, of your work is that, that that theory is kind of core to what we're talking about here.
0: Yeah. So it's pretty interesting. And I think a couple of things to pick up on from what Mm -hmm. you had just said. And the first is one is we don't necessarily know because you've formed an opinion there about how people look when they're under Mm -hmm. pressure as being calm under pressure. But I guess I'd like to take the next step and say, what is the performance under pressure? And I think there's a small difference between those two things because sometimes performance isn't necessarily completely correlated. Sure, Clearly there's individual personality factors, but the Bit that you're talking about is yes. Are we just talking about a sort of resilience physiologic model of mm-hmm. let's cause harm and then over time the muscle rebuilds? And of course, uh, human beings with their cognitive and affective responses are a little more sophisticated, we would like to think. And so the role of reflection on these experiences and being able to deconstruct them, I think is the essential difference between uh, some of the outcomes that we see. And so, for instance, if we were to follow this pure insult followed by resilience model, uh, people would only then develop their resilience for the specific situation they mm-hmm. had been exposed to. So maybe they were exposed to airway and trauma and stuff like that, but then they wouldn't be calm if they hadn't been exposed to some other situation. Whereas I think if you say there are conversations to be had, reflection to be done, um, knowledge to be gained around these experiences, then you develop a much more generic capacity to be able to preserve performance under pressure. And I think that's the essence of all simulation training, mm-hmm. if what you're doing is only preparing people for the scenario that you've got in front of you, then you've missed an opportunity. So yes, we're doing a STEMI with a ventricular tachycardia, but we would hope that has made people better at working together as a team more generically, maybe dealing with their stress. So I do think the learning conversations are one of the key parts of this that distinguishes it from purely exposure. Hmm.
1: First off, I I love the idea of of you know, describing a lot of what we all go through as insult resilience. I think that's, <laughs> I think that's really good. Right? But I also think it, you know, like there is a sense of, of growth and, Knowledge that comes sort of lateral to the exact thing that you see. So, so you're right. So, so there's, there's like a simplistic model that's like, okay, you know, sort of the rat uh, running a maze kind of thing. Like the rat gets better at running that exact maze, but do they get better at running mazes in general? Right? But there's also the idea that, it, you know, if you take somebody who is uh, an excellent athlete in one thing, they're, they're really likely to be able to pick up another sport much quicker and with much more expertise than, uh, than somebody, you know, random. E- even if those two sports don't really have anything in common other than a sense of, you know, I guess really I'm asking like, what are the common underpinnings, right? The, the proprioception and, and sense of self and, and movement and kinesthetics and everything. Um, so we're sort of relying on, on some of that, which is to say that, we expose ourselves to these insults. We get through them. We become resilient to that thing. But we hope we develop stuff laterally to that. We develop whatever those underlying skills are that allow us to to also um, put a more resilient front forward towards something we've never seen before, or something that's mm. that's not one of the things we explicitly trained on. Um, and in mm. fact, our we uh, we sort of silently demand that. Out of our job right the whole one of the whole points mm-hmm. of emergency medicine is that you are capable of stepping forward and addressing a thing that you've never seen before and almost nobody sees everything in fact I, I don't know anybody that would be able to say that they've seen everything that happens in emergency medicine you, you know even ignoring the new and emerging problems that people keep co- coming up with uh, you know ways to get sick and hurt themselves but even ignoring that right like like nobody sees everything so we yeah. we demand that people are able to make that jump and and You know, really, we're getting getting close here to needing to describe like near transfer versus far transfer and a couple of these other sort of like learning
0: theories. But speaking of theory, the thing that I would pop in here is the concept of adaptive expertise. Mm -hmm. So Martin Pusick and Bill Couture have talked about this and learning adaptive expertise, which is application of standard approaches when appropriate, but to be able to be creative in problem solving when the need arises uh, involves very deep foundational knowledge as well as exposure to meaningful variation and uh, exposure to and reflection on productive struggle. And so I think this is probably... Um, although we didn't include that in our paper, I think that is probably one of the essences of how we learn the kind of thing you're talking about in emergency medicine that allows us to be adaptable and to transfer uh, skills that we've learned in one context into problem solving in another.
1: Hmm. So, all right, so maybe this is a good way to wedge into this. So so what did did you do here? Right. the 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 thought was yeah. to get at some of these underlying substructures of of you know how do you teach people how to do this and how do we how do we teach people via a simulated world how to do this and and, and what did you do?
0: I guess the background is that uh, at my institution at the Gold Coast we have a regular weekly simulation activity which it goes is for two hours. Awesome. <laughs> Yeah, and it's doctors and nurses. It's usually four or five doctors and six or seven nurses, and we usually do a couple of scenarios that are very typically ED-based. Some of them are things that involve simulated patients. We do stuff like delirium and end-of-life. Many of them are things that you would recognize in emergency medicine scenarios, airway management, resuscitation, trauma, toxicology. We work with mannequins. So we have that as our backdrop, and I think that is pretty important, Dan. Uh, But we read about um, and had been part of so-called stress inoculation or stress exposure sims and uh, thought that the idea was, well, why don't we run one session every now and again that we deliberately say is stress inoculation or, as we would prefer the term now, stress exposure simulation. And we did what probably a lot of people describe doing in their blog posts, uh, which is put on a crazy sim. So high acuity airway management everything goes wrong you sabotage the airway trolley so that people are super stressed you you know turn the lights on and off you have overhead distraction noise uh coming in and make it totally cognitively off the um off the scale so that they get stressed uh, and so we did a couple of these, but we were a little bit more careful because we didn't want to destroy all the trust that we had so carefully put together. So we deliberately said, this is a stress exposure simulation. We didn't make that a surprise. We sent people pre-reading uh, about, you know, stress, its recognition, regulation, some of the concepts around that. And we debriefed after these simulations, essentially using the same framework. And then we did a couple of these. And then over time, we went, you know what? We don't need all that crazy stuff we just need to run a pretty challenging scenario like a lot of emergency medicine scenarios are so we ran these stress exposure simulations, and in order to try and say, well, how should we design and deliver these, uh, we did a qualitative study that looked at what was the experience of the both facilitators and the participants in these simulations, and that was a combination of some uh, surveys as well as some interviews, plus we had some heart rate recording uh, on them while they were doing these uh, simulations. And uh, so, in short, we found a variety of things that uh, surprised us and quite a lot that didn't. Uh, we looked at what kind of experience uh, of stress they had, what were the things that made them stressed, what did they do to manage them, uh, what should that mean for our design and delivery, uh, how should we have these learning conversations and debriefing, and actually did any of it transfer to practice so that was the sort of basis of, of how we did it. Um, and then happy to go into the sort of findings If uh, unless you've got some questions about sort of what else we did.
1: So here's the question that I had coming forward from this, which is that that the thing that really struck me was the intentionality of what you all were doing, right? Which is the idea to say, okay, we want to do sims and we're going to do it to train things like teamwork and communication and team level performance across disciplines we're going to design a whole system and do this and then there's this natural tendency to be like i don't know let's just kind of screw with them a little bit right let's just like let's just like make them do it backwards or you know put a blindfold on them or you know add a co- add some chaos in. and and that's a pretty normal human tendency i think when you're dealing with like this sort of group of people right like like and there's some, and it's kind of fun, right? Let's be honest. It's kind of fun to like put people through challenges like that. But you're, but the thing that, that really struck me is the intentionality that you all had about doing it in a way that built trust as opposed to destroyed trust. Can, can you talk about that a little more? Cause I thought well, that was phenomenally mm. interesting.
0: Yeah. Well, we're a little bit biased because one of our other research interests in this group is psychological safety. And I think that is very misunderstood. Uh, both in the sim world and more broadly uh, in healthcare and beyond. And so psychological safety at its essence says you're going to have really challenges, e- challenging experiences and we expect very high performance and we will have very high regard for your effort and we will not shame you for uh, doing something wrong. In fact, that will be a puzzle to be solved, not a crime to be punished. And so psychological safety is the feeling that I'm able to take a risk uh, in a group. And so that promotes people's learning because they will take a risk. They know that the expectations are high, but they also know that if they fail, they won't be shamed for it. Instead, it'll be an, a topic for discussion. And that is be something that is out in the open. So we know that this promotes learning far more powerfully than simply um, putting people into something overwhelming and saying, it's good for you. If you can survive this, you'll be fine. And I think that is a challenge to the dominant paradigm um, that was happening, particularly in the sim world. And I think, you know, I probably did go through a phase where that felt fun. Now it actually feels yucky to me, this idea of tricking people (laughs) and thinking that uh, it's good for them and they'll enjoy it. I think there are a small number of people for whom maybe they don't mind being messed with, but I think most people like things to be fair when they're engaging in something. They don't mind it being hard, and they don't even mind not achieving whatever they would have hoped to achieve, Uh, but they certainly don't want to be mucked around with it. So I think that's probably where we were coming from, Dan, and it powerfully influenced our, to use your word, intentionality about how we approach doing this was that we thought there was a way for this to be psychologically safe and highly challenging. Uh, but I think, again, it comes back to really trying to get at what are people thinking and feeling, not just are we bouncing them against a wall or hitting your head over and over, sure. as you said, in the hope that then your head develops a little bit more thickness.
1: Sure. Now, w- w- we're going to talk about the results in a second, but but the way that you're describing that, uh, a high-challenge, high-expectation, high-trust environment, do, do you think that that, a required piece of doing Mm. stress exposure simulation or is that a nice piece of doing stress exposure simulation?
0: I think it's a required piece of any simulation. Mm. I honestly think if you're not putting people at a level that is their zone of proximal development, you know, at the edge of their expertise, then it's arguably a little bit of a waste of time. Mm. So I think this high expectation, and then I think the high trust, high regard will just accelerate learning, um, enormously but you know in some of the other work that we've done if you don't have that this is potentially very harmful and each year we get some new registrars who arrive who have trained elsewhere and they are frightened of coming to simulation because of the humiliating experiences Mm -hmm. they have had in other centers and it takes us a little while to undo that harm so i actually think we've got responsibility for all our simulation and probably in the workplace as well, to really pay attention to this psychological safety. And we do. But I think this is not to be confused with it being soft. Of course. There's no come back in after failing and going, don't worry, you'll be fine, just read more. Good job. Like, no, actually say, looks like that was did not go how we wanted. Let's get into that. Let's Mm -hmm. really think about why that was. So, So I guess... Uh, we feel pretty strongly in our group about this that uh, there's no pa- there's no paradox between high expectation and high regard.
1: Absolutely. I, I completely agree with that. I'm, I'm challenged sometimes by the uh, ability to build a system that allows that kind of thing to happen, right? Because I, I think one of the things we're going to get into as we keep going through this conversation is like somebody listening to this who wants to adopt some of these things. How do they do that? And, and it sounds like we're arriving at the point that a fundamental building block is like, okay, first build this before you build stress exposure simulation. Am am I reading that right?
0: You are reading that right, and it is problematic because Mm. I would say it probably took our sim program 12 to 18 months before I could say that, and having now Mm. done... SIM programs in my institution because I have responsibilities beyond emergency medicine. I would say the same happened with our ICU Mm. team, the same happened with our maternity team. At first, you run these simulations and you've just got to get past the months where people are suspicious, they've got a bad feeling about SIM before they actually start to realise, oh, this is actually to be embraced. Here is our chance to push ourselves. Mm -hmm. We're now going to see it through a bit of a growth mindset and a learning opportunity as opposed to a threat. So I think that is quite hard, but I think it and it also makes it confronts these uh, workshops at a conference mm-hmm. of stress exposure of people that don't sure. know each other, sure. um, just going to a course, not working with teams, and I don't know whether there is a value proposition in that sort of stress exposure simulation, because I don't know that you can magically build psychological safety with a little round the room. You can certainly support it. You can certainly help. But I think it's really hard to get into that effective learning zone uh, when you've got people who are coming for a one-off experience uh, of simulation. Now, I don't know that for sure. Mm -hmm, I haven't researched those contexts, but my gut feel is, big big challenge to try and create an environment where you could achieve those outcomes in that sort of time frame.
1: Yeah. And it's interesting because you can absolutely make it worse even on a one-off thing. Oh, like you yes. can you can design a thing that would hurt people fairly easily and destroy their yeah. abilities and self-confidence and 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 just like wreck them. And and the how to do the opposite of that you're you're describing, how to create an environment that is conducive and functional for training this sort of stuff with without or as an alternative path to creating a deep network and deep system like what you all have built, I think is a really an open question hmm. that, that we're going to have to keep thinking about beyond, beyond the confines yeah, well. of this conversation.
0: You know, it's interesting when this paper that came out, uh, I got a few direct messages on Twitter and a few emails saying, thank you for doing that because I went to X and it was horrendous. You know, I did this course and, oh, my goodness, it was awful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it suggests those people not only didn't learn something, they would be reluctant to go back and have another go at that. And I feel like that's the real tragedy here because there is so much to be achieved using this method. And I do not think it's because these people are weak. Many of them are not junior or overwhelmed. They're, you know, mature, excellent practitioners, but the modality uh, was incorrectly matched. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm.
1: Well, all right. So let's table that line of thought for a second and and perhaps come back to it and and shift gears a bit. And so, so what did you all find when you did this when you when you peered under the hood here and started digging into what people were, were thinking and feeling about this?
0: Yeah, sure. And I guess, uh, for the qualitative researchers, there is a description in the paper of how we did our data analysis of the interviews, uh, and of the survey responses. So we ended up with a series of themes and I can just sort of go through them. But the first thing was actually looking at what caused people to be stressed. And of course, there were some of the things that you would imagine, like the scenario was, you know, challenging, was hard. It was airway management. It was resuscitation, whatever. A big source of stress was the anticipation. The fact that they got the pre-reading actually made them emotionally activated. It meant they read the (laughs) pre-reading. But it was one of the sources that they cited of emotional activation was anticipation. And interestingly, our colleagues from the Bond Tactical Research Unit a bit like your mission critical teams mm-hmm. friends uh, say this is really common in a lot of their work that they do in you know heart rate uh, variability is that that anticipatory stress is very strong. Uh, but then there were other things that were sources of stress, such as if they were in a team that people that they hadn't worked with as much. So, you know, a lack of familiarity with the team. Uh, And in the couple that we did early on, uh, things like the equipment not being where it was, was a source of stress. But for the most part, all that trickery didn't necessarily add to the stress, it just added to the... Distrust. Um, The other thing about the experience of stress was whether they recognized it in each other and in themselves. Uh, And so people did tend to go to the kind of cues that I think you were talking about before. So they could see it in others when their tone of voice changed or when there was uh, too many people talking over each other in the room. So the next theme that we focused on was about managing stress. And we came up with uh, sort of two broad categories. People did have some personal things that they did to manage stress, and some of them were, you know, the box breathing type stuff. A lot of them were things like returning to frameworks. So I just returned to my ABCs, or I just know I've got a cognitive aid to help me with this particular algorithm. Uh, but then some of them, and probably one of the most important ones, were the teamwork strategies, but uh, having a team leader who was calm, uh, having recaps, uh, having a whole range of things that we know functional teams do. But that, quite aside from just preserving performance, was a stress mitigator mm-hmm. itself. And then our next theme was about design and delivery. Uh, And so comments about the challenge uh, of balancing the challenge and the psychological safety did come up uh, and the need for things like a pre briefing and to having authentic scenarios, uh, things like knowing that this was part of a bigger program and not just a one off was, uh, I think, a very helpful thing. Uh, interestingly, because they were wearing their heart rate monitors, people found that quite interesting, more as a prompt for reflection rather than what the actual results were. So they liked seeing their heart rate data and thinking about, you know, at this point, I was stressed for this reason. Hmm. Uh, and then the other thing, because we had a couple of, as I said, our colleagues from the tactical research unit, the healthcare professionals loved hearing from the mission critical team specialists, you guys are good. They they found that outrageously more validating than anything we would have said. So that was interesting. Uh, the importance of the debrief was obviously came up and the idea about giving people a little bit of a framework about how to think about stress and emotional activation uh, and then having some sort of personal reflection on that. Uh, but then also the last theme, and perhaps the one that we were really uh, most interested in, was uh, how it transferred to mm-hmm. practice. And we prompted people to say, can you give us an example? And people had them. Mm. Uh, and some of them were around having had a very intense experience with particular individuals, but more of them were just around actually having a framework for what to do when they started to recognize this emotional activation in themselves and how that might then play out in terms of other behaviors that they could draw upon uh, in order to preserve performance while regulating stress. So again, I'll just really reiterate that point. And this is why we don't like the idea about inoculating. We don't want to remove stress or emotional Mm -hmm. activation. What we want is to recognize it and regulate it so that we can preserve performance Because, in fact, removing it is probably not the aim here, and it's probably an unrealistic aim. But regulating it sufficient to preserve performance uh, is actually the objective of any of this.
1: Yeah. Yeah, there there was, um, I'm not going to get it verbatim, but there was an amazing quote by one of your participants that was something like, yeah, stress is still there, like crack on anyway with it. And uh, (laughs) I know, it's such an Australian thing to say. This is so good. Um, (laughs) Just
0: crack on. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Which is totally true, right? I mean, we're not talking about, we're not talking about, you know, making things softer or eliminating stress. Uh, we're not talking about designing people that are eliminating stress from their workplaces or their environments. That's just not the reality of emergency medicine. We're talking instead about, about how do we train people to deliver the best knowledge they have in these stressful circumstances? And, and how much of that can we front load into training in these ideas to sort of make that Make that really work. Um, so that's really interesting that you all were able to track that in terms of things that people f- say they're doing differently. You know, when they go back to work th- in, in the next couple of shifts, I think that's really fascinating. I wanted to pick up on something you talked about about like um, the the parallel disciplines, almost right. So when you're describing how important it was for your medical folks to hear from the tactical folks, hey, you're doing a good job. I think that is a drastically under levered principle that is really true. Right. I mean, there are incredible things. And this is one of the real strengths of the, you know, mission critical team Institute, which is that there there are real strengths in having somebody that does something that is not what you do, but a sister discipline to what you do, a parallel discipline, look at you and be like, wow, that's hard. Right. Like that's really hard. And whoa, you're doing a good job. I mean that that is like incredible and it it's funny to me that it works in all it seems to work in many directions right like some of the um, um the folks that I've had a chance to intersect with who have told me wow what you do is hard seem equally impressed when I tell them what they do is hard which is kind of mind blowing right because we none of us think like we have the ability to influence each other like that but I think that's a really cool yeah. underutilized system that I don't know how to study that but that'd be really fascinating to to actually press on in a in a more you know yeah. sort of thorough environment
0: we- We certainly had that experience. Uh, And they also bring with them often some interesting language and some interesting Mm. concepts. Like one of the things that our tactical uh, friends brought was this concept of proxemics. And I guess we've always had an idea about how you use the space in a room and where you all stand is quite important. But because that group uh, in particular are very interested in the physiology of performance, uh, that gave us some additional language and some additional hmm. concepts, I think, for our team to think about in terms of their performance.
1: Hmm. What, what have you all done differently thinking about that?
0: I think it comes up as a topic in our debrief hmm. more frequently now. We think, had have we optimised our environment adequately for our performance. So this is a little bit different and separate to stress per se, but we certainly see because of the narrowing of perceptual um, abilities under when you are stressed and under pressure, you'll sometimes find a team way over in the corner of a room, crowded around a bed that somehow got there. And meanwhile, there'll be this massive space on the other side. And you think, well, whose job is it to kind Mm. of keep an eye on the fact that we haven't optimized our environment here? Or maybe in some rooms that are really small, we need to turn the bed 45 degrees and then you'll get two big triangles either side of the bed instead of three kind of not very helpful rectangles on three sides of the bed. So just thinking about that and how to optimize it. And uh, in my experience, the team leader is usually cognitively overloaded and unable to do that and sometimes in the wrong physical space in the room to be able to do it uh, and yet sometimes just a very small things change it so it was great having our um, rob and Alyssa, who were co-authors on the paper as well because they offered certainly things about stress and physiology of performance but they also offered a lot of other expertise uh, about teams and teamwork that uh, has been part of our ongoing collaboration with them
1: Love it. Love it. So interesting. So, okay. So we have these themes that people are reporting back on and they are somewhat expected, somewhat unexpected. And and they they give us a window into what it feels like to be a participant in a stress exposure simulation. What do we drive from this? What do we learn from this? If I'm trying to, let's say I'm, I'm, training folks, and I believe that you can train them to handle stress better. And I think I certainly personally think that's true. Um, What do I learn from this in terms of how I'm designing things?
0: Well, we really strongly wanted that to be a set of practical recommendations that we made. And so we did put some in the paper. So I'm happy to go through those. But I think first thing is that if we're going to be talking about stress or emotional activation and performance. We actually have to know something about it ourselves as facilitators. And I guess I have a view about that even if we're training people in teamwork, we owe it to ourselves to do some hard yards, reading, uh, finding out about team science, and in this case about stress and emotional activation and and how we can respond to it. So I think the first thing is uh, train ourselves in the content knowledge. Second, I do think you need to prepare people for this experience and to uh, give people some reading and some preparation for it so they're not just coming in uh, cold. And I think to give them a chance to process some of these cognitive frameworks so that they can think about it and perhaps reflect on, in the case of our teams, uh, Dan, their own prior extensive mm-hmm. experience of being stressed in the real clinical world. Uh, I think the next thing that we would recommend for this is that the pre-briefing should bring those things together, mm-hmm. spend some time with the group, really having clarity about what the experience will be, because we know that that does support psychological safety. Uh, This is what you'll be doing. This is where you'll be going. This is where you'll be doing it. uh, This is who you'll be doing it with. So just some clear expectations of what's going to happen uh, as well as uh, building on that conversation and perhaps asking people about what they thought about the pre-reading, maybe providing some of these frameworks uh, not forever. It's not a lecture on stress, but at least some mm-hmm. appropriate pre-briefing uh, to again, build and support that psychological safety. And then the Sims themselves I think you pick something that is challenging for that relevant clinical team, and that's enough. And I would, we, I think we wrote in the paper, we emphatically suggest don't bother with all the trickery and extraneous cognitive load because uh, it just then becomes a chance for people to disengage because it's not real. Uh, potentially to be harmed if it's tricked, and now I feel overwhelmed. Uh, and potentially to destroy trust if this is a group that you want to ongoing uh, work with in simulation or other kind of learning. Uh, And then finally, I think the debriefing is the bit that we would say uh, to prepare for properly and to have some kind of a thoughtful uh, structure about how to do that. Uh, And in our case, it was taking our standard debriefing, uh, but instead talking very much about the recognition and regulation of stress and the strategies to do that rather than being distracted and saying let's talk about the management of head injury because while we might want to address any burning questions as soon as you start this uh, becoming a clinical topic mm-hmm. I think we remove the focus on the stress uh, recognition and regulation so we so as I said we were very keen to send some recommendations you know we can't ever be a hundred percent sure of those sure. for everybody else's context but i think for us it's become a sort of practical uh set of guidelines and principles that we think is uh, is helpful
1: so to to reflect some of that back like if you're going to be training stress exposure train it on purpose set yourself up to train mm-hmm. it successfully and just train that don't surprise people don't train that along with a variety of other things, try to train that as its own as its own thing.
0: Yeah, I think so. And I, I guess I'll give a little rider on here. Mm-hmm. We certainly do simulations every week that involve a whole range of clinical topics. And if, for instance, one week it came up that uh, it didn't go well and people in, say, their initial reactions phase says, oh, my God, that was overwhelming and I was so stressed, it may be that opportunistically you sure. say, okay, why don't we make one of our topics about why that was stressful and what we did or could have done Mm -hmm. in order to mitigate that, to preserve performance. So I do think there's still a role for opportunistically discussing stress and stress response in SIMS. But I think, yes, if you're going to do something that you're calling a stress exposure simulation, it's good not to muddy it too much by trying to deal with too many learning objectives on clinical topics at the same time. Mm -hmm. We did a training
1: a little while back where we were working with mid-level residents becoming senior-level residents. And one of their new responsibilities was to um, take command of of the team that would respond to an in-hospital cardiac arrest call. And we put them through a variety of simulations explaining here are some of the scenarios you might encounter. And we did a very simplistic measurement of their cognitive load during each of these simulations. And one of the things we found that has stuck with me is the absolute heterogeneity and variety in what they were experiencing we were probably in enormous air quotes giving everybody a similar experience but what people experienced was massively different and what we didn't do and i wish we had done was ahead of time ask each person developing the simulation what are you trying to do with this is this a is this a technical skill set sim is this a stress exposure SIM? Is this a communication sim? What is your goal? And then see if you could actually target the experiences of the learners to that goal. What we got was a hodgepodge of things that that seemingly worked to some extent. But I, I, I love this idea of doing doing this on purpose when you're gonna do that. I think that's I think that's absolutely crucial.
0: Um yeah, that, well, that's, that's very interesting, Dan. Uh, I think we never quite know what is the experience mm-hmm. of our participants in sim or otherwise, but your point about intentionality, I could not double click on more ferociously. Mm. Uh, and I think often we try and write six different learning objectives for a simulation and that's probably unrealistic. Now, yes, learning conversations can ha- be opportunistic, but I think if you want to achieve something, uh, try not to aim for everything.
1: So true, so true. If you want to achieve something, try not to aim for everything. Like like legit words of wisdom in there. I love that. Uh, I think absolutely. that's my guidance yeah. for life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um,
0: But um, – I feel like we we could pretend, well if you're finished with talking about the paper. I mean, I know that you've been sharing some wisdom along these lines for as we've been going through. But uh, I am interested because you know we've had our very local experience and sort of thought about how that extrapolated to the rest of uh, our world in emergency medicine, and that was partly why we published it in an emergency medicine journey. But uh, I'm interested. Uh, a little bit in some of your broader conversations you have with people about this, and you work with the mission critical teams. So uh, maybe we could start to switch yeah. the emphasis here. Of who's asking questions?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think it's a really open question, right? How to train how to train people to get better under pressure is an open question, and there are layers to it, right? There's like the individual layer and the team based layer of how to do this, and those are often different skill sets, right? So the stuff you're going to do to train, I, I think. You know, both in my own experience and then in my work with these teams, the stuff you're going to do to get an individual person better able to handle their physiology, right? Better able to handle their personal response to doing something is different than what it's going to take for a team to gel, communicate and adapt and, and pivot under pressure. And that's probably different depending on if you're working with a solid intact team or more of a liquid style swarm team that comes together for this purpose. There's different skill sets involved in that. Um, so like you said, if you're going to, you know, achieve something, try not to aim at everything. I think it's worth saying, well, when we're thinking about training, what is the level that we're trying to train people at? Because if you're really trying to do a system that is focused on improved, um, I was talking to, uh, uh, Scott Weingart the other day, and we were talking about, um, uh, he, he, and I were trying to come up with a word for this, and we sort of settled on the idea of smash teams, which is where you take two solid teams and smash them together on a thing, right? So it's like you have the intact emergency team that's been working together for a 12 hour shift, the intact trauma team that's been working together, but maybe they don't know each other and they smash together to handle a trauma, right? If what you're trying to do is train communication along a smash line, just making these words up as I go, by the way, but we're going to keep it like, you know, you train communication on a smash line. That's a really different designed project than if you are trying to say, how does an individual person pivot to a backup plan under pressure? Right. And it's Mm -hmm. probably good to not do both of those at once. Probably. Although, you know, the open question for me is, like, how do you accomplish this with limited time resources and training? Because sometimes you do have to do all these things at once. Um,
0: Yeah, so it's super interesting, isn't it? Um, I think there is a role for individuals learning skills at recognizing and managing their personal stress response. And, you know, you mentioned Scott Weingart and he and Mike Gloria have written about that. And I think these are really helpful. I don't know that you necessarily need to do a team-based simulation to do that, because I think your point about return on investment for what you're doing is helpful um, way of thinking about this. And I think that is over-specified for if we're training individuals. Um, so that's important to do. We definitely found in our interviews with participants that It was the team-based strategies that were the most effective for them in terms of regulating their stress and preserving performance. And I was recently reading... Scott Tannenbaum's and Eduardo Salas's book, Teams That Work. And they talk about this backup behavior and cross-monitoring between teams, which in our experience was one of the things that allowed people to return to a more functional level of stress. And they said that there's sort of three conditions, and I think this is relevant for your smash teams. So one condition is the perceptual one to recognize that backup behavior is needed. And that does involve a variety of skills and knowledge in the area. The second was that having a team expectation that backup behavior would be offered and accepted. And I think that is a challenge for the smash teams that you talk about that is easier to develop, not just even in an intact team, but just say in a group that shares that expectations like our emergency team might do. And then thirdly was to have the capacity to provide that backup and so, um, you know, sometimes in those SMASH teams, that's not always the case because maybe the visiting uh, anesthesia resident doesn't know where the equipment for X, Y, or Z is. So they can't back up the airway nurse in helping him or her find the stuff they need to do the airway. So I think uh, that framework is quite helpful for me with that sort of backup behavior and cross-monitoring. The other thing I'd say is, contrast that with maternity teams where often uh, obstetricians and midwives have skill sets that are more similar say, in a birth suite room. And so their ability to back up each other is perhaps a lot more than it is with, say, doctors and nurses and from different departments because you and I are the first to know we're actually not very good at backing up a lot of nursing roles because we actually just don't have the skill sets that are required. So we're more inclined to play our positions, but we can back up to some extent and we have a powerful expectation that we will.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting to think about like what – what the systems are that you would want to design to press on these levels and these different ideas. Cause ideally, like, like, what would you, what would you build if you had all of the time and resources in the world, right? You'd build places that had individual level training on managing physiology, you know, learning under pressure and applying knowledge under pressure. And then you'd also spend time training with intact and swarm style teams separately and together about that. And you'd probably go back and forth, right? It's probably not a graduated thing where you would, now that you've mastered yourself in enormous quotes, now you are ready to graduate team-based training. It, it's probably not like that, right? It's probably more of an an oscillation where sometimes you're working on individual skills and sometimes you're working on team skills. And, and that synergy that you get from going back and forth is really important because there really is like the, like, in a To me, an important part of learning how to master your own physiology and your own stress response is watching how other people do it, right? Is the diversity of opinion and diversity of ideas that comes from learning how other people handle theirs and being like, well, I don't know. I've never thought about that. Maybe I should try this. And like, oh, wow, that really does work for me really well, right? And those conversations that happen are a result of dipping back and forth between the the team and the individual levels. Um, You know, I, I... I don't know how to build that, although if anybody's listening to this that has enormous piles of money that wants to uh, give it to me so I can try to figure it out, I'm totally in, let's, <laughs> let's go,
0: right? Yeah, um, I think you're right. I mean, I think in education we would call that a programmatic approach and or a spiral curriculum. Uh, so I think exactly what you're saying. I think one of the keys to that is having well – informed and trained faculty Mm -hmm. because then I think you can see opportunities so in our case you might see opportunities to help that even when you're working on the floor with people to use some of those same frameworks and language that you might do to deconstruct experience with individuals or with teams, say, in a hot debrief. Then you might do this with your weekly simulations where it's an intact emergency department team, and you might bring up some of the Mm -hmm. same topics when you do your monthly trauma simulation, as we do, where we've got the smashed teams, as you to use your lingo, who come together, usually quite happily, actually. Mm -hmm. But uh, that might be a different conversation again. So I think the faculty is a, is a... Key thing, who because I think they can then see opportunities if they know this is an important point. Yeah, but I've got a question for you, down Now, yeah. um, you know, and that is, what do you do? Because I think we've told you about our study. You and I have talked fairly uh, roundabout about how we're training other people, but I think a lot of people know that as a result of your personal experience and talking to so many others. What do you do when you get stressed? How do you mm-hmm. recognize and regulate that?
1: Yeah, so many, so many things, right? I, I, I am very lucky that I have a really large background in training in martial arts, um, and and for the last several years that's been jujitsu, and I, I trained this morning uh, before before joining you on this call, um, and one of the things that I think that martial arts uh, training and jujitsu training does really well is that it uses this idea of of graduated pressure on stuff. Right. And, and it allows you to train different things at different times of what you're doing. Right. So you learn a, you learn a technique. You learn it very slowly. You break it down into components. You put it back together. Sometimes you run it backwards and forwards a few times. So you sort of understand it. And then you start training variations to it. Okay. What happens if this happens? What happens if that happens? Then you start adding pressure and you'll often do this thing. Um, but, You know, so you can, on, on one end of the spectrum is just rehearsing the technique over and over again. And on the other end of the spectrum is free rolling, where you're just wrestling somebody and you're just kind of seeing what happens and you go. Um, and then in the middle, there's this thing where there's a lot of things, but one of the things in the middle is this idea of positional sparring, where basically you start in one spot and you go until you leave that spot. And then you stop, and then you go back to that spot. The idea is that you can employ some of the features of real life training, like speed and power and, you know, um, dynamic movement, but you can do it within this constrained environment and practice one thing over and over again. Um, that really helps you get to what you described as sort of the zone of proximal development and spend more time there. And so I think part of my answer to that is like, try to train on purpose for this thing try to try to take advantage of that. Um, I, uh, I think that's easier to do when you're with a cadre of people that care about this, right? So when you show up to jujitsu class, it's understood that you're all there to get better. You're all there to push yourself. You're all there to train to the point where you're going to fail at something and then you laugh about it and, you know, you know, give the person a high five and go back to work again the next time around, right? Like you're supposed to be at this, at this level of failure around that. And I think that being exposed to that reality that you should train at this zone of proximal development, or if you read some of the flow literature, right? Like 4% harder than what you think you're able to accomplish. Like if you're able to stay in that zone, then, then you're not as scared of being in that zone. And I think, I think that exposure to that zone allows you to be more comfortable in that zone and it's a really virtuous cycle for it. So I feel really lucky about that. I I don't know that I got access to that zone in a way that felt comfortable and good when I was training medicine, but I definitely got it when I was, you know, having people punch me in the face over and over again. And like, and like taking advantage of that is super important. So can you, can you be in the zone that matters? Can you, and can you be there with joy? Right. Can you, can you be happy in that zone and happy at a place where you're not succeeding at everything and pushing yourself? Um, and ideally, can you do it with a group of people that are able to help you stay in that space and push you to get better and better about it? Um, and then the last thing, I, or one of the last things I'd say, I guess, is that, is that, can you take advantage of like whatever's around you? Right. So one of the ways that I trained to be better under stressful circumstances is I think through complex skill sets at the end of a run. When I am physiologically ramped up now, we know it's not exactly the same, right? The neurochemical mix that's going on at the end of a run has probably way more of an endorphin spike in it than like what it actually, it is the, the neurotransmitter that you're, that you're getting when you're in a crisis. However, there are some similarities, right? Your hands are a little bit shaky. You have some adrenaline going on. Your heart rate's very elevated. Uh, your breath is not what you'd want it to be. So can you practice saying things and doing hand motions and thinking through things and leverage? this, this like natural experiment, so to speak of having access to some of these zones. Um, I love that. I think it it makes me look pretty ridiculous to be totally honest, right? Like you finish a run and you're like, you know, going through like the steps of putting a test, you know, a really, a really great one. If you really want to push yourself is you know, think through what you're going to say the first thing when you go into a room and you're taking over a cardiac arrest case, right? You know, and is it whatever it is? It's some version of like, you know, I'm emergency. Who's in charge? You know, what do you need? Okay. Tell me the situation, right? But do that when you're super out of breath after a run and you're standing there being like, oh, okay, okay. You're know, like, you really have to train yourself to slow yourself down and do it. And, and you're able to transfer those skills to the environment of actual clinical resuscitation. Mm, I love um,
0: this. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I think it builds on what we know about mental rehearsal as well. And you're adding to your mental Mm -hmm. rehearsal with some physical, as you said, hand movements, voice, all those other things. So it's not just a simulation in your brain. It's a simulation in your brain augmented with the involvement of your body and the physiology, which we know is actually really important. Mm -hmm. And it's... uh, yeah. Well, how interesting. I, I would like to see that. We might have to get you to record a little video that we can release with the podcast <laughs> oh, absolutely. because uh, I'd yeah. love to see Dan, uh, in his running gear, leading the resuscitation you know, virtually,
1: I, imaginatively. I recent oh yeah, I love it. I, I recently had the opportunity to speak, uh, at the retrieval 2023 conference, which is an amazing group of, of folks in the, you know, the, the helicopter and retrieval world. And one of the things that I loved about that conference is that the- it had a 5K baked into it.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: which was awesome. There are some fast people in that crew. I got yep. my butt kicked.
0: I think the last thing I'd mention before we sort of start to wrap up here is uh, you and I have talked a lot, and it is a bias in our specialty towards the stress in the resuscitation room. And we always go to these examples of the airway management or uh, the trauma case. But, you know, it was very interesting when we did a couple of these sessions and we started with our round the room about what stresses us when we didn't say in the recess room as a qualifier, people actually came up with a lot of things that were far more stressful than the recess room. Mm-hmm. And there were occasionally patients uh, who were difficult to deal with and manage for a variety of reasons. They were conversations with some of our colleagues, uh, you know, difficult personal interactions, uh, the stress of having too many patients. So I think the other thing, maybe that's a whole other topic, but, you know, the transferability of some of this Mm -hmm. to context other than the recess room, I think, for our uh, specialty and for our emergency departments is actually um, a really important thing that we didn't spend as much time thinking about, but I would rather hope that we can extrapolate some of these same principles uh, to those contexts. All right, yeah. well, it's been such an interesting conversation, Dan. Thank you Absolutely. for your time. Yeah. Thank and you. I'm looking forward to releasing this on Simulcast and to hearing it on The Emergency Mind. Uh, so exactly. for our listeners, we, as we said at the beginning, we're co-releasing this, and uh, that is a special fun thing for me. And uh, I like talking to Dan Dawkers anytime. But thanks so much, Dan.
1: Oh, Vic, my pleasure. Thank you so much for, for doing this with me and for the work that you all are doing and for pushing the field forward.
0: Thank you for listening to Simulcast.